0: Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. And it's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. But rejoices with the truth. It always protects. Always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Good morning. I like raucous. I think raucous goes down very well, especially when the clocks have changed and it's a miracle that anyone's here at all. So thank you for your welcome. You're overly generous, I have to say. But it is a joy to be here. And just like Karen said, John and I count her and Dave dear friends. And we've seen each other over many years. And I've heard a lot about you. They gossip when you're not there. They gossip and talk about you behind your backs. And uh, it's wonderful to come and see that everything they've ever said is perfectly true. You are amazing. So greetings to all of you in every far-flung corner of this quite remarkable church in all the different centers, whether you're with us today in Leicester or in London or in Cambridge or in Peterborough. All of you are massively welcome, and it's a joy to be able to share with you in this way. And before I begin, I just want to remind you, on behalf of certainly the Vineyard, and I think probably further afield than the vineyard, right across the body of Christ, I want to remind you that you are a very remarkable church and that you are very well spoken of, far and near. In fact, what the New Testament calls, you are of good reputation with outsiders. And people talk about you and it's a wonderful thing because they're not talking about you, but they're talking about Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's a wonderful thing to hear. I even had you raved about by my taxi driver last night. Wasn't that random? So random. And he knew exactly who you all were. So, I also have to say to you that you have very, very remarkable and fine leaders. And I congratulate you. I congratulate you on having chosen them and indeed for bringing them up so nicely. They're really coming along well. And it's a little bit like parents and children. Children actually do tend to bring up their parents. And um, much the same way, congregations tend to bring up their leaders. So you're doing very well. Today we are, of course, celebrating Mother's Day, which has many associations for many people. And it can be a slightly ambivalent occasion. For lots of us, it's just all daffodils and delight. It's gratitude at every turn, and you associate yourselves with Shakespeare, of course you do, and in the words of Henry VI, you would say with him, Lord, lend me a heart replete with thankfulness. And I know that's how I woke up feeling this morning, even on very little sleep. For other people, Mother's Day is associated with heartbreak and loss, and sometimes even the dread of having to watch other people's delirium. For some, it's poignancy, wishing that I had children. And for others who have children, it's anxiety because they do. Many of you, you may have heard this definition. No matter how old a mother is, she watches her middle-aged children for signs of improvement. (laughs) (laughs) I I say that with some feeling. Although I have two grown sons, as as you say, Um, but neither of them are middle-aged, so they come out of that. They are both remarkable. Of course they are. They're just amazing. I mean, the best thing that ever, ever was born. But um, one of them is an academic and very, very bright and argues for the Lord and is is a Christian ethicist. And I'm glad somebody is, frankly. And the other one um, goes around the world playing his guitar to very great effect. So between us, we have a very happy family. And they... They both have taken unto themselves wonderful wives, one each, of course, and they're absolutely (laughs) fabulous. And between the two boys, we have now got four grandchildren. And John and I waited forever, and then suddenly, like London buses, they all came at once. So they are four, three, two, and one, and they keep us on our toes. And I have to tell you, if you haven't realized it already, that grandparenting is not for the (laughs) faint-hearted. So, however different our circumstances, we do all have one thing in common. Each of us was born of woman as the sparks fly upward. So you have a mother, or had a mother, I had a mother. I had a redoubtable mother. She was a large personality, she was a very large woman, she had a great frontage, and she was very strong, very, very strong. She was Welsh, she, her family was split down the middle during the Welsh Revival and she feared for me that I'd come out on the wrong side of that. She was terrified of the things that I got up to. She was mildly eccentric, and she was occasionally absolutely useless. Absolutely useless. So when I married John at the age of 31, she obviously felt it was incumbent upon me to say something to me on the subject of sex. 31. I had waited 31 years. And she drew herself up to her considerable height and her large front, and she said, My darling, big breath. I have had two babies, I don't know how, and don't ask me anything. Which was all that I was ever taught about that subject. So the fact that we have two sons and four grandchildren is grace of God indeed. However, 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 such such was my mum. So, asked what could be done to restore the prestige of post-revolutionary France... Napoleon said this, give us better mothers. Abraham Lincoln, no man is poor who had a godly mother. St. Teresa of Lisieux, the loveliest masterpiece of the heart of God is the heart of a mother. Or maybe you prefer the honesty of Nigella Lawson. When one becomes a mother, one is no longer the picture. One simply becomes the frame. And I have to say there is an element of truth One of my favorite women was a confident, self-assured American woman, never pushy, wife of a president. Her name was Barbara Bush. She was married to George Bush, the older. She had a shock of white hair, and she always wore her skirts too short. Nobody ever told her. However, she was marvelous. She was redoubtable. And she was invited at one point to go to a women's college to present the graduation certificates. However, some of the women disinvited her at the last moment because they considered her far too traditional. But being the woman that she was, she went anyway and she braved the boycott and she spoke to those young women and she said to them, you are never going to regret the deal you didn't make or the business opportunity you missed, but you are going to regret for the rest of your life if you don't love your husband and love your children. Being a mother, and many of us are and many of us aren't, and I'm conscious of the ambivalence of that even this morning. But think back to your own background. Think of the people around you. Think of the Christian community like this, where our way of life is to prefer one another. One of the most moving things we ever did in our church in London years ago now was for all the single women to rise up and bless the young mothers who were struggling. And I suddenly realized this is what the Christian community looks like. We watch for one another. We prefer one another. We take care of those in whose situation we aren't. And even whose situation we might envy. So having said all that, I'm still saying that being a mother is probably, my John would say, the hardest job this side of heaven. And I love Carol Wimber, whose husband John, of course, was used to, um, God used him to set up the vineyard. And he had an enormous impact on many of us personally, and I would like to say on this nation in many ways. Carol Wimber said this, nobody else can do what I can do for my family. All I wanted was for my children to know Jesus, and my home to be a little bit like heaven. Which is all one could honestly pray. And then one last and not surprisingly anonymous observation. It isn't easy being a mother. If it were, fathers would do it. <laughs> so, gentlemen. Bring on the daffodils, I say. There was, of course, one very remarkable young mother. Who was often confounded by her son and suffered unspeakably on account of him. The angel's first words to Mary, the mother of Jesus, were these, favored woman, the Lord is with you. And there really is no favor, no wonder, nothing greater than the absolute assuredness that the Lord is with you. Whoever you are, whatever your circumstances, be you a mother, be you a father, be you neither, whatever you are this morning, whether you've been here forever, whether you've walked through the door for the first time, the greatest, like me, the greatest assurance is to know, is to know that the Lord is with you. God is here. It's amazing. And Mary, of course, stood for obeisance and obedience. She honoured the Lord. She said, I am the Lord's servant. Be it unto me, even as you have said. And then, of course, at the wedding in Cana, so many years later, she said to the servants of Jesus, do what he tells you. What a word to the church. Do what he tells you. And so I want now to consider, just for a few moments, I want to consider the very extraordinary son, born of woman, to whom she points us. Mary, his mother, speaks to us of the humanity of Jesus. He was like us. Martin Luther said of him, He ate, he drank, he slept, he was weary, sorrowful, rejoicing. He wept, he laughed, he knew hunger and thirst and sweat. He talked, he toiled, he prayed. That was his humanity. So, Luther went on, there was no difference between him and other men, save only this that he was God and he had no sin. In other words, his divinity. So if his mother reminds us of his humanity, all that Jesus was, all that Jesus did, all that Jesus achieved, cries out to us of his divinity. Son of Mary, indeed, but son of God, absolutely, absolutely. Alfred Lord Tennyson said of Jesus, his character was more wonderful than the greatest miracle Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist, I believe there is no one lovelier, no one deeper, no one more sympathetic or more perfect than Jesus. I recently discovered a quotation completely new to me from Albert Einstein. He was clever, frightfully clever. As a child, he wrote, I received instruction both in the Bible and the Talmud. I am a Jew, said Einstein, but listen to this. I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. This is Einstein. No myth could ever be filled with such life. Don't you love it? He also said, Einstein also said, if I had my life again, I'd be a plumber. Did you know that? He did. (laughs) I saw it on a plumber's store in New York, and I photographed it and sent it to my plumber. I said, there you go, there's a wise man. Back to Jesus. No single person has so changed the course of history, has been so loved and despised, so hated and adored, has so turned the bad into good or the ugly into beautiful, as has Jesus of Nazareth, whose name we sang. All the armies that ever marched, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon earth as has that one solitary life. So why am I a Christian, you may ask? Well, if you haven't, you should. Because I want to be so sure that my past is taken care of, that the cross has been endured, that my sins have been forgiven. I want my present to be as full as it can possibly be. I only get one run at this bar. And so when Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly, sign me up. I want abundant life. I just don't want to waste my time, this side of heaven. And because I found in Jesus my future secured, I have found in him, in the person of Jesus, someone so marvelous, so magnetic, so much fun, to be around, so kind, so wise, so pleasing in every possible way. I cannot commend him to you highly enough. At the end of the last century, there was a Lord Lord Chancellor of England called Lord Hailsham. And he found faith in Jesus when he was a student at Oxford and he wrote a book. And in his autobiography, he said, I had never before thought, I love this, This is my favorite, I'd never before thought of a laughing, joking Jesus who had nicknames for his friends and told stories at every point. He said, I decided we would have been absolutely entranced by the company of one so irresistibly attractive as a man that people followed him for the sheer fun of it. If this Christianity thing wasn't fun, if there wasn't joy in this, it would be too stinking hard but there is fun, there's reality, there's suffering, there's pain, there's anguish, but there is fun, there is joy in following Jesus, there really truly is. And Hailsham concluded, I decided, I concluded that our century, he was 20th, we're 21st, this 21st century needs to rediscover the person of this happy and glorious man whose mere presence filled his companions with delight. Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? There was an early church father called Athanasius and he said this, if we were to try and number the achievements of our savior, it would be like gazing over the open sea and trying to count the waves. They are so many. They are so endless and they never stop coming. So let me just suggest to you that in the minutes that we have, I want one or two of those waves for us to look at, one or two of the benefits that Jesus offers. Why is he so incredible? Why is he such a hero to us? These may be things that you know already, but you know it's worth dwelling on them again. These may be truths that you've never, ever come across until this morning, and therefore I'm saying to you, listen carefully, because this is life-changing stuff. Because to those who are searching for truth, Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is the truth. He speaks the truth. He is able to speak to us of the father to tell us the truth about God because he is the son and he knows his father face to face. There is in Rome a very remarkable chapel, the Sistine Chapel, where the Cardinals will go to elect the Pope when the last pope dies. The Sistine Chapel was created, or painted, or decorated by Michelangelo in the early 1500s. And it's probably one of the greatest works of art ever done by human hand. Michelangelo lay on a trolley on his back for three years, painting the ceiling. It's a riot of stories and of personalities and characters from the Old Testament, prophets and sibyls, villains, rogues and villains, heroes of the faith years he lay on his back painting this extraordinary piece of work. And if you go into the Sistine ceiling today, which I'm the Sistine Chapel, which I've done once or twice, it's an amazing, mind-blowing, breathtaking experience. But if you look up at it for any length of time, you become so dizzied, and you have such a crick in your neck, that you just can't cope, it's overwhelming. And so the Vatican authorities, in their wisdom, have placed at sort of floor level, this sort of level, a whole series of mirrors all around the chapel so that you can look into the mirror and see various parts of the ceiling perfectly reflected. Jesus is that mirror. He reflects perfectly to us what God is like. And we can look at Jesus and we can discover the person of God without getting an overwhelming theological crick in our neck. Only Jesus... Only Jesus can communicate God's will and can tell us firsthand what he is like. And, of course, Jesus said, whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. He and I were like that, so close. Anyone who's seen me, he said, has seen the Father. So for anyone looking for truth, who do you say I am, Jesus said to the disciples? My answer is, Jesus, you are the truth. To those who need guidance, he says, I am the way the truth, and the life. Jesus alone can guide us through the minefield of our society even today. Sometimes I am tempted to despair. Sometimes I cannot watch the news anymore. Sometimes I have to turn off things because I am such in a place of such compassion fatigue. There's so much that is so wrong. There's so much that offends. There's so much that is so circumstantial and situational. Ethics will change with the day, which is why I love to have raised a son who will fight for Christian ethics at every level of academic life. I love that stuff. We need to believe what we believe and to hold to what we believe because God has absolute standards and he will not be trifled with. And truth remains truth, however hard you find it to stomach. That's what I believe. That's what I believe. And Jesus is the truth. He is the truth and he leads us in the ways of truth. Make your way plain before my face, I often pray. Make your way plain. I want to go your way. I want to do it your way. I don't want to be caught in the quicksands of secularism and of values and of morality and of ethics that change with the wind. Some outrageous things that people are coming up with. You think, how much further can we go before Jesus says, okay, I'm coming back? This is getting outrageous. You know what I mean, and I don't need to specify further. But I need a guide. I need a guide who will put my feet firmly on the stepping stones of the truth. And the truth is in the scriptures. And all the time, Jesus points us to the scriptures. Moses said, even before that, he said, these are not just words. These are your very life. Paul said to the Romans, what does the scripture say? There are answers to our dilemmas. There are answers to our problems and to our question marks and to our ethical conundrums. And they're all in the scriptures. And Jesus is our guide. He is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. To those fighting for justice, Jesus, um, Paul preached to Jesus. Paul in Athens said this, He, that is God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. By the man he has appointed. Oh, and by the way, Paul went on. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Jesus is the judge and he will return and he will make judgment. And I don't know about you, but for me, the whole doctrine of judgment is one of the most comforting doctrines there could possibly be. You can't exactly have a top 10 of doctrines because they all come up the top together. But if I did have one that was quite a favorite, it would be judgment. It's such a relief to my soul to know that the judge of all the earth does right, and that at the end of the day, he will do right. Talking of judgment, talking of judgment, have you heard the story of a teacher in a little South East London school who spent weeks rehearsing an Easter play with his class of eight-year-olds? Very topical. Come the big day, everything was going according to plan. The crowd duly shouted for Barabbas, and an eight-year-old Pontius Pilate strutted out centre stage to pronounce judgment. He turned to Jesus. He assumed a very big, heavy, strong, old voice, and he said loudly, So, this is goodbye, Mr Bond. (laughs) Honestly, honestly. (laughs) Can you believe it? I mean, I'm not to laugh at such big things, but hey. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Judgment is a great, great comfort. It answers our deepest cry for justice, whether over crimes such as massive crimes of the Joe Stalins or the Pol Potts of this world, the ethnic cleansers, the sex traffickers, the drug dealers, the men who knife each other to death in our streets. These dreadful things, the cries of the unborn calling out for justice, God alone will deliver. My John was brought up in Blackheath in London and he had a friend in the church, a boy called Nick. And Nick was severely, severely disabled. He lived his life prone on a trolley. He couldn't do most of the things that the other boys did. But he had the sweetest spirit. And he was interviewed once in the church. And the interviewer said to him, Nick, do you think it is fair that you should have had to live your life like this? And Nick famously replied, no, it's not fair, but God has the whole of eternity, to put it right. Isn't that sweet? Queen Anne of Austria to Cardinal Richelieu, who was a villain, she said to him, God does not pay at the end of every day, my Lord Cardinal, but at the end, he pays. To those looking for justice, Jesus is the judge of all the earth and he will do right. To those troubled by guilt, John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is no other God. There is no other system. There is no other philosophy. There is no other religion. There is no other hero in the history of the world for all time and in all places who has been able to deal with the problem of human sin. Jesus alone... Jesus alone can offer complete freedom and forgiveness. No wonder these people bounce up and down when they're worshipping. I've never seen people bounce so much. Marvellous, lovely. But it's because it's true. It's true. We have been set free. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus has died for us. Jesus has carried the can. Jesus has stood in the line of fire. Jesus has taken the blows. Jesus has sprung the cage. And because of Jesus, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished upon us all. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, this morning, you are here because God has lavished his love upon you. Most of you know it. Some of you aren't quite sure. Some of you are beginning to realize, well, what a glorious thing that you should To those looking for love, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I know you've been studying recently for weeks, 1 Corinthians 13, that towering scripture about love. All of it is impersonated. All of it is incarnate in the person of Jesus. We are inextricably linked to Jesus. I am the vine, you are the branches, he said. Have you ever seen a vine? You can never see the end from the beginning. There's the trunk up the middle, and then all the branches, inextricably linked, unqualifiedly loved. That's what we are. In the 14th century, there was an extraordinary German mystic called Johannes Eckhart, and he tried to explain to people why the love of Jesus and his identifying with us was so precious. And he did it like this. He said, the best God ever did for man was to be man himself, I will tell you a story to illustrate my point. There was once a rich man and his wife. The lady, by mischance, did lose an eye, whereas she grieved excessively. Then came her lord to her, and he said, Oh, wife, why are you so distressed? Fourteenth-century English, okay? <laughs> my lord, tis not my eye I mourn. I mourn for fear that you should love me less. Nay, wife, he replied, I love you. Afterwards, not over long he put out one of his own eyes, and going to his wife, he said, Lady, so you may know I love you. I have made myself like you. I, too, have just one eye. Jesus came. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus identified. Jesus was our role model. And to cap it all, Jesus died and was raised from the dead and is in heaven as we speak, rejoicing over us, looking down upon us, enjoying our company, worshipping with us, interceding for us. And as John Wimber used rather sweetly to say, I have good news and bad news. The good news is Jesus is interceding for you. The bad news, you're going to need it. But how wonderful, how wonderful there he is. And he sends his Holy Spirit to live in us and to remind us of all these glorious things. I could go on and on and on, but I really, really won't. Finally, finally, coming into land. Landing lights are on. I'm on my way. To those afraid of dying, Jesus says this. I am the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Everyone, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. And that's what I live for. That's what I long for. That's why this place is gonna be packed out at Easter. That's why you need to bring your friends and your relations and your dogs and your cats and your goldfish, anybody, anybody, to hear the good news that Jesus had died and is alive and changes lives, transforms things, makes it worth living because of him. I've been around people as they've died Pastors tend to. I've seen long drawn out and agonizing deaths. I've seen sudden traumatic deaths. I've seen little children following their mother's coffin into the mortuary because she died so young. And I've thought to myself every time, John and I between us have buried four parents, two each, you understand. But you know, every time I think, how do people live without Jesus? How do people die without Jesus? And the good news is, of course, that we don't have to. So these are some of the achievements of our saviour, our king. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, our guide and the judge of all the earth. Jesus, the lover of my soul. Jesus, the resurrection and the life. What else can we possibly do but worship him, give glory to him, be grateful to him, celebrate him, And as we close, I want to suggest to you, I think I sense that there are people in this room, many of you may have come as visitors, and how wonderful, just like me. It's great, isn't it? It's a good place. I think it's lovely. And um, you may have felt very welcomed. You might think, oh, this is interesting. But you may just become increasingly aware of the person of Jesus, and you've never thought of him before. You've never realized his claims upon you. And if you're somebody who would like to respond to him, even this morning. And you may say, Jesus, this is very new to me. Jesus, I'm just coming into this. But Jesus, I want to know more. I want to invite you to be a part of my world and of my life. I want you to change me. I want you to make a difference. Well, then, just as we're sitting, I'm going to pray as we close. And there may be people for whom that's true, in which case I would invite you and encourage you, along with all the other people in this room, to pray this prayer right now, and it will be the beginning of the rest of your life that you will never, ever, ever regret. So let's pray, just as we sit. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. We thank you for the reality that I've just been talking about. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are so amazing. So wonderful. And this is a prayer just for one or two of you. Lord Jesus, I haven't really thought very much about you before, but I'm conscious that you're making yourself known to me even now. Some of us talk about knocking on the door of my life. Lord Jesus, I'm beginning to believe that you did die for me, to set me free to take care of all my sins and to set me on a straight path from this day forward. And so, Lord Jesus, I'm inviting you to come into my life and to begin to make a difference. I want to get to know you more. Amen.